This is the Hidden Why podcast, episode 943. My interview with James Clear discussing his book, Atomic Habits. It is a replay episode. I hope you enjoy. G'day, James. Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for uh, joining us, mate. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself in a nutshell. Who are you and what do you do? What are you passionate about? Well, so my name is James Clear. I write about habits and decision-making and behavior change at jamesclear.com. I've had my own business for the last eight years, and the last five or six have been spent writing there, um, mostly about habits, but also about strength training and productivity and creativity and the various areas that habits impact. I got into the topic as an athlete first. So I played okay. baseball all the way through college and, uh, and compete occasionally in weightlifting competitions now. And, you know, as any athlete can tell you, there are all sorts of habits that are associated with practice and training and nutrition and so on. And uh, I didn't really have the language for it at the time. I just knew that I was trying to get a little bit better each day. But looking back now, and this is one of the core themes of uh, the book that I just finished writing, Atomic Habits, which is that if you can get 1% better each day, that can lead to a very significant improvement and some mm. pretty remarkable results in the long run. And uh, so it's, it was only later uh, in the last five years or so as I've spent time researching and reading and writing about these topics that I've come to learn some of the scientific principles behind them and been able to develop a better language for describing what was going on and how we can take advantage of that process and uh, kind of apply it to whatever area of life we're interested in. Yeah, awesome, man. I love it. Um, so certainly a, a personal journey um, that's led you to helping. How many followers you got now? You got a few hundred thousand or millions? Yeah, so uh, about one to two million people read jamesclear.com each week, yeah. or sorry, each month, and uh, wow. about 400,000, 400, I think I think now it's about 420 or 430,000 uh, subscribed to the email newsletter each week. Yeah, congratulations, mate. You're doing well. Uh, obviously helping a lot oh, of people you. and providing a lot of value, so that um, that shows with the numbers there as well. So. I love it, mate. And certainly habits is is one of those things that um, I continually battle with. I'm sure that uh, all our listeners do. Um, We all do. You know, it's one of those things. We've got good habits and bad habits. And um, it's easier said than done to change them often or to incorporate new ones into our lives, right? Yeah. One of the things that's uh, both incredibly powerful about habits is that they do compound and add up over time. You know, many of the choices that we make each day, these little small decisions, uh, are easy to dismiss kind of on both sides, you know, like the difference between going for a run for 15 minutes, uh, or not going for a run doesn't really sound like a whole lot. The difference between, um, you know, eating a burger and fries for lunch versus eating a salad. It's pretty easy to dismiss today. You don't really, the scale doesn't really change at the end of the night. You don't really see any difference in your body in the mirror. Um, if you study a new language for 20 minutes, you still haven't learned the language. Yeah. So on so a the daily term basis, results aren't, uh, aren't as noticeable. Yeah, they're not They're Uh, it's only two or five or 10 years later that the impact of your habits becomes fully apparent. Hmm. And because that's true on both a positive and negative uh, side, it's both easy to, give up and not worry about putting much effort in because you still haven't achieved a result and easy to let a bad habit slide once or twice. And so for that reason, habits are sort of like a double-edged sword. They can compound for you or against you. And you really need to understand how they, how they work and how to put them to work for you so that you can avoid the dangerous half of the blade. How how do they work? I know there's a process that you describe in your book, uh, Atomic Habits, um, but it's all about ultimately the reward that we're after, isn't it? That is true to some degree. Mm. So um, most biological and cultural pro- uh, processes, whether we're talking about habits uh, or many other things in life, are some form of a feedback loop. And habits are also a feedback loop. They're sort of this neurological feedback loop. And I break it into four stages. So there's a, a cue, something that gets your attention. There's a craving, which is sort of the prediction that you make after you see a cue, like, you know, will this cookie be tasty or am I already full? Um, then there's the routine or the response that you, uh, that you perform. And then finally there's the reward and you are right in the sense that it is ultimately about the reward. Like the cue signals that you're close to a reward. The craving is your expectation that a behavior will be rewarding. The response is about getting the reward. And then ultimately, um, you either feel like 
you were satisfied by that experience because it was rewarding or you were punished or unsatisfied because there was some type of consequence or you didn't get the benefit you were expecting. Hmm. And that sort of closes the loop. And so if, uh, if an experience is rewarding, then we have a reason to repeat it in the future. Yeah. And if an experience is, uh, unsatisfying, then we tend to avoid it in the future. Hmm. But the key element there is the speed, the immediacy. So I call this in the book, I refer to this as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is that behaviors that get immediately rewarded, get repeated behaviors that get immediately punished, get avoided. And the speed has a big thing to do with that. And if you think about why, why is it so easy to slip into a bad habit or why is it so seem so difficult to get a good habit to stick? It's often because behaviors produce multiple outcomes across time. So for example, if you eat a donut Mm -hmm. right now, the experience is favorable, tastes good, it's sugary, it's enjoyable. So the immediate outcome is favorable, but the ultimate outcome two weeks or two months from now is that you gain weight. Mm -hmm. Good habits are the reverse. The immediate outcome of going to the gym, for example, is you sweat, you have to work hard. It's a little bit of a sacrifice. It's painful. So the immediate outcome is <laughs> yeah, the immediate outcome is uh, is unfavorable. But the ultimate outcome, two weeks or two months from now, is you're in shape. And so much of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is about figuring out how to take the ultimate out, uh, consequences of your bad habits and pull them into the immediate moment, so you feel a little bit of the the pain of the bad habit now. And finding a way to pull some of the rewards of your good habits into the present moment so that you have a satisfying experience and a reason to repeat it now. That makes that makes sense. It's um yeah, I mean I mean the the, the challenge is is to start that practice and get it going. And I guess that's a habit in itself is to get into the practice of bringing attention to those those bad or good habits and then bringing the future uh, goal or reward into the present. Well, there are a variety of things that you can do, and this is uh, in the book, I refer to them as the four laws of behavior change. And you can sort of think of each one as like a lever that you can pull, and you don't always need to use all four. Uh, It depends on the circumstance you're facing, but usually you'll find there are one or two that are very relevant to what you're facing at the time. Um, So, for example, if you're trying to break a bad habit, it's often the first and the third law of behavior change that are the most relevant ones. So, for breaking a bad habit, the the first law is to make it invisible. Would, in other words, like make it hard to see, make it difficult to initiate. So, you know, don't have very common example is if you don't want to eat sweets, then don't have any sweets in the house. They're not as obvious. You're less likely to, mm. to want to eat them. Gotcha. Um, another one is television. You know, so like if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the TV. So what is the most obvious thing to do in that situation is to watch television. It's what the room is designed to do. That's the so, cues. Yeah. Is this, it relates to the cues. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. There's, there are a lot of visual cues there to look at the TV. The remote control is out on the, the coffee table. The television is sitting right there on the wall. Maybe the video game console and the controller are out on the floor. Yeah. There's a lot that, could just spark your idea to play a video game or turn mm-hmm. on Netflix or whatever. And Co- cookie uh, jar in the middle of the table. Exactly. <laughs> and if you can remove these visual cues, yeah. right? If you can uh, shift the environment so that you see more positive cues, or for example, you know, you could take the television and put it inside a wall unit or some kind of cabinet so that you're less likely to see it. You could take the remote control and tuck it in a drawer and then put a book in its place. Yeah. Um, if you really wanted to get extreme, you could take the television off the wall and put it in the the closet so that you only take it out when you really want to watch something. Mm. Um, you could take the video game controller and the console and keep those in a drawer. Uh, you could take the batteries out of the controller, or the batteries out of the remote. So there's like an extra 20 seconds in between starting it up. And that forces you to think like, do I really want to do this? So there are a variety of little environmental changes that you could make there. Um, and then it's the second that, thing that you yeah, I read a book, sorry to interrupt, I read a book by um, sure. Ben Hardy recently and he, and he talks about willpower that doesn't work and um, I'm not sure if you've read it, I'm sure you have, but um, he really talks about the environmental factors as, as being the, the crux of our problem and making sure the environment is fit for you know the lifestyle you want to live or the, the goals you want to move towards. Yeah, I think uh, so. I'm familiar with Ben's writing, and I think that that point is uh, exactly what I'm talking about here. This idea that environment design and choice architecture can play a big role in the behaviors that we perform each day. And I guess I could just summarize it by saying that 
you don't have to live uh, this way. And oftentimes people say, oh, you just need willpower, grit or perseverance. But it's very hard to uh, con- I've, in fact, I would say I've never seen someone consistently stick to positive habits in a negative environment. Maybe you can overpower it for a day or a week, but to ask yourself to do that every single day, uh, it's very likely that you'll be able to succeed. Yeah, right. It's interesting because I know the TV personally, and it, it took a while, but the TV for me is still in the living room, um, but we can't even get TV reception anymore. We use it purely to watch movies or occasional Netflix show, um, but it's certainly a habit that I got out of by introducing a different habit into that. So what habit did you introduce? I started I started podcasting and blogging, so I, rather than sitting in front of the TV, because we used to sit there, like most people do, I think, is get home from work, turn on the TV, and it was pretty much, you know, from 5 or 6 o'clock at night until 10 o'clock at night, TV was on. Um, whereas now, I, I well, I started by reading books, actually. I started just by leaving the TV off and, and sitting there and reading a book. So that's a good example of uh, what I would call the fourth law of behavior change, which is to make it satisfying. And mm. so I mentioned this earlier. You, the ending of a habit needs to be satisfying. You need to feel successful in some way yeah. in order to have any reason to repeat it in the future. If you do something, I mean, this is a very logical system that your brain has built. I mean, all day long, if you were doing things that weren't uh, achieving the or solving the problem that you were facing at the time, that'd be a really bad system. You'd be wasting energy all yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah. So the signal of feeling successful is a good thing. And it doesn't necessarily mean... Um, I don't mean that feeling in the sense of like some big thing, like a graduation or a, you know, a, an achievement at work or a promotion or something, but all day long, there's like little emotional signals, little, very tiny feelings of success that reinforce to you that you're doing the right thing. And, uh, you don't need something grand after each habit, but you do need at least some small signal that, Hey, that was effective. That's all the problem I was looking for. And, um, so like accomplishing so case, or purposeful having some sort of, you know, productive result. Yes, I think so. I mean, the way that you can think of habits is that they are automatic solutions to the recurring problems that you face in life. So, for example, um, you know, if you wake up and you put your shoes on and the shoe is untied, that is a problem in some sense. Uh, You need to get your shoe tied. And so over time, you do it 100 or 200 or 300 times, and pretty soon you can do it more or less automatically. And this is the purpose of a habit is that they help you solve problems more or less on autopilot so that you can direct your attention and energy towards other tasks that you face. Now, the key thing to realize here is that you're going through life all the time facing these problems, and the original solution, the original habit that you came up with to solve that problem is not necessarily the optimal solution. So, for example, one person might come home from work and they feel stressed and exhausted, and so they play video games for an hour or they watch television for an hour. Another person comes home and feels stressed, and so they smoke a cigarette. A third person comes home and they go for a run for, you know, 20 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. And all of those are habits that solve the same kind of fundamental problem. Gotcha. But the original way that you learn to solve the problem is not necessarily the optimal way. And your method of substituting reading a book in place of watching TV for an hour, uh, that's one example of an effective way to break a bad habit, which is figure out the underlying problem that you're trying to solve and then substitute a different uh, routine or a different behavior that can get you sort of the same satisfying ending. It can resolve the same craving. Hmm. Yep. So that, that one is to do with the fourth law of behavior change? Correct. Yeah. So make it satisfying. You need to, uh, the purpose of a reward is to, so just as a summary here to remember the four steps of a habit are cue and craving. So that's what I would call the problem phase. You see something, you realize there's a problem you want to solve. You have a craving to get some kind of results, solve the problem. Then there's the response and the reward. And that's the solution phase. That's where you try to resolve this problem that you face. And so the, the second stage craving is when you are feeling in a particular state that you want to change. So you feel exhausted and you want to feel refreshed. You feel stressed and you want to feel calm. Um, the reward, there are two purposes of a reward. The first purpose is to resolve the craving that you feel. So if you feel stressed when you get done with work yep. and you want to feel calm, then smoking a cigarette or going for a run or playing video games, all these things that we just mentioned, are ways to resolve that craving. So that's the first purpose. And then the second purpose of a reward is it's like a signal, an emotional signal to your brain 
that teaches you what to do again in the future. It teaches you which solutions are effective uh, at solving the problems you face. And so when that problem comes up again and you come home from work next week and you're stressed, now you already have a solution you can draw on. And uh, you can already see just because the solution is effective doesn't mean it's favorable for you in the long run. And that, I think, is the distinction between good and bad habits is that bad habits are good immediate solutions, but ineffective long-term solutions. Good habits are effective long-term solutions. And what we're trying to do is to find a way to make the thing that's good for you in the long run enjoyable for you in the present moment. Gotcha. So really, it's it's about, you know, the the how we've been designed is, is to save energy in our cognitive function so we can use that energy as needed for other um, perhaps survival-based tasks, even though that's not as necessary these days. Yeah, correct. And, I mean, there are uh, – necessary is an interesting word. You know, like we, uh, we do have most of our – from what I can tell, uh, most of our daily needs figured out. We, most of us don't worry about – where shelter is or where the next meal is going to come from or whether a lion is going to sneak out of the bush yeah. and attack Energy us. Energy um, running away from a lion, yep. Right. I mean, in large part, our, our basic survival needs are uh, handled in modern society. But uh, there are all sorts of other things that we compete on now, whether it's status or relationships or um, power. Mm. And uh, freeing up your mind to focus on some of those other areas can – still help you win the battle of status in modern life, I guess, if we, uh, if we phrase it that way. So sure. there are, yeah. your brain naturally starts to, to drift to these other relevant problems when it has the space and energy available for them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so going back to the, the second Lord, so we were talking about um, making it invisible. Actually, and just on that point too, I, I thought, you know, I was just thinking about good habits um, and good habits would be, I was just thinking out loud, is, is making it the opposite, so making things visible. So if you want to go for a jog, maybe putting your, your joggers beside your bed or something in the morning so it's visible, it's a visible cue straight away to um, trigger that Correct. that desired behavior. Yeah, so this might be a good time to go over the, the four laws and just kind of summarize them so people can see. <laughs> right. So the, the four laws for building a good habit, these are what I call the four laws of behavior change, the cue, you want to make it obvious. Yep. The craving, you want to make it attractive. You want to make the behavior as attractive as possible. The response, you want to make it easy. So the easier a habit is to do, the more likely you are to do it. And then finally, the reward, you want to make it satisfying. So make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. For breaking a bad habit, we just invert each of those four. So gotcha. instead of make it obvious, make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. Okay. And uh, any of those four... Uh, make you increase the odds you're less likely to do the behavior. They increase the odds you'll be able to avoid a bad habit. Gotcha. Makes perfect sense. Okay, so we're looking at making it, um, I mean, you talked about making it invisible. What was the um, the second law? So making it obvious? Make it attractive is the second law. Uh, okay. Second law. So you want, you want to have it to be, uh, so here, here's the, the way to think about this is, before each behavior, your brain makes some kind of prediction, some kind of expectation. So, yeah. for example, um, you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. And maybe if you see that plate of cookies, you expect it to be tasty. You get some kind of craving. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you have an expectation that is attractive to your brain. You're like, oh, okay, I would like to eat this. And then you walk over, you eat it. That's the response. And then it tastes good. That's the reward. However, you could just as easily imagine that you, say, for example, just finished dinner in the other room, and you ate five cookies, and then you walk in, you see another plate in the kitchen, and you think, oh, man, I'm stuffed. Like, I don't want to eat anything else right now. And so, same cue, you see a plate of cookies either way, but your prediction, your expectation changes based on your current state. And so, uh, this is one reason why the craving or the second stage is, is a really essential part of this process because it is a prediction that you want to change your state. So if you want to change, then you have a reason to act. If you don't want to change, if you're happy with your current state uh, and the opportunity to act is not attractive, then you have no reason to take the action. You have no motivation. And so this stage is more about the emotions and feelings and predictions that lead to this feeling of motivation or this drive, a desire to take action. Um, and so much of what makes a habit attractive or not, there are a variety of things, but a lot of it comes down to how it's framed. 
So, uh, you know, pretty much any good advertising campaign can tell you that by framing a product in the right way, it suddenly looks more attractive to people. Um, mm. It increases odds that they're going to take action and buy the product. And so uh, if you can frame your habits in the right way, then you also can see them as more attractive and are more likely to uh, take action. And a lot of this comes from making your habits as easy as possible. If something is not intimidating, something is simple uh, to do and seems like it's going to get you a result quickly, then suddenly that seems very attractive. And so in this way, we can start to see how the four laws work with each other. And if you can get all four lined up, if you can have an obvious habit that is attractive and easy to do and has some kind of immediate satisfaction at the end, well, man, I mean, that's a behavior that you really feel wired to do that you're very likely to fall into. Gotcha. So how do we, how do we begin to, because that sounds like a, a very much a mindset matter, like framing things in the right way. Is that just, is it about bringing attention um, to that to that habit that you desire to change on a more frequent basis? And so when you do, um, you know, see that cookie jar, you can sort of tell yourself a different story? Some of it is with the story that we tell ourselves. Uh, I always hesitate to say, oh, just like reframe your mindset or just think about it differently because that sounds a little uh, dismissive, like, oh, it's just in your head. Yeah. And also it's like, it might be easy to do that once or twice if you're being reminded in the moment, but it's really hard to rely on that in the long run right. to say, Oh, well just, you know, just think about cookies differently. Like, you know, it's not very effective for most people. So instead I find there, there are better entry points for making habits attractive. So one of them is timing. Um, the time of day that you ask yourself to perform a habit can dictate a lot about whether you find it attractive or not. So for example, uh, in the morning, I find that this is a good time for me to stick with my writing habit, largely because the other emergencies and urgencies of the day have not crept in yet. You know, if I were to wait until mid-afternoon to try to write, well, at this point, I'm responding to a bunch of emails and other people's agenda items, and uh, the day has kind of spiraled a little bit out of my own control. Mm. And so I would still, it'd be nice to, to stick to a writing habit then, but it's not as attractive to do because I have this other stuff competing for my time. Yeah. And, uh, that is just as true for, for any habit. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be in the morning, but as a general principle, your energy is better at different times of the day for different tasks. Yeah. And so asking yourself to stick with whatever habit it is you're working on at a time when your energy is right for that. And when the environment is right for that is going to make it seem more attractive. You know, you could, for example, want to stick with a daily meditation habit. But if you're asking yourself to meditate at 7.30 a.m. and you've got two little kids and you're trying to get them ready for school and everybody's running around getting breakfast, that's <laughs> just, it's not a good time for that habit to fit Wouldn't in. Right? in my it's not very yeah. So um, figuring out the right time when your energy is right for the habit is a great way to make habits more attractive. How do you, how do you figure that out? Like, is there, is there sort of a, a general rule to, you know, what tasks are better done in the morning when our energy is at the peak, um, compared to the afternoon, or is it just a matter of, you know, I assume it's a little bit of a mix of both, but is it a matter of experimenting yourself with, with those tasks or those behaviors that you want to incorporate and seeing what feels you know better for you? Well, I think ultimately the answer does have to involve some form of experimentation. You know, I, I could come on here and give some perfect answer about the ideal time to do each type of habit. But if that doesn't work for your life, then who cares, right? Like you, you need yeah. to be able to experiment um, to see what fits you. But there are some general rules. Uh, if you don't know where to start, I would suggest in the morning, uh, just for the reason that I gave, which is that the longer a day goes on, the more likely things are to be a little bit out of your control. And so the earlier you can get it done, the less likely it is that you'll fall off course. The second thing that I can recommend is um, I do have an article about sleep and sleep habits. And in that article, I have a picture of the circadian rhythm, which is this natural rhythm that your body goes through uh, throughout each throughout each day, sort of these yeah. different energy cycles. And okay. based on the circadian rhythm, there are different times of the day when your brain tends to be, uh, as a general rule, more wired for certain tasks. So for example, um, I've tried working out at various times of the day. I've tried uh, early morning. I've tried mid-morning, like around 10 or 11. I've tried uh, late, uh, late afternoon or early evening, like between 5 and 7. And uh, I even sometimes have gone even later than that. But what I found is my energy tends to be best around five to seven. And so that's when I work. That's when I get my best lifts. But it's also just when it feels like the right time in my day for it to fit. 
Now, who knows? That may change over time. But based on my personal experimentation, a lot of people say, and I just said, you know, the morning is a good time for things, but it just didn't work for the workout habit for whatever reason. So I think uh, earlier is better as a general rule, but you need to experiment to see what works for you in that particular habit. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. It's a good note on, uh, yeah, trying to fit in, in the right times with, with those habits. Um, what are the the most common, uh, I suppose, most common issues you, you find people uh, have with regards to changing habits? Like what are the most significant problems about getting out of you know, bad habits or incorporating good habits? Well, I'll give you two. So one is about getting started and the other one is about staying consistent. So uh, when it comes to getting started on a habit, and this sort of weaves in with the third law of behavior change, which is make it easy, even when you know you should start small, and many people have heard ideas like this before, you know, take small steps, begin with baby steps, you know, scale it down, whatever. Even when you know you should start small, it's still easy to start way too big. So for example, you know, people might say something like, all right, I want to get in shape. So I'm going to run three days a week, but I know I should start small. So I'll only run for 15 minutes. But even that is way bigger than what I'm talking about. So, um, instead the habit should be something like get on your, your running shoes and step out the door. And if you run at all, if you take 10 steps, then that's just a bonus. Now, a lot of people feel like, oh, that seems like a little bit of a trick that, you know, like I know the real <laughs> goal isn't to put my shoes on it. The real goal is to go for a run three days a week. But uh, what people fail to forget is that you need to standardize before you optimize. You need a, a habit must be established before it can be improved. If you don't master the art of showing up, oh, that's a good point. then you don't really have any chance of improving it to begin with. So I, for example, I had one reader, he, uh, he ended up losing over a hundred pounds but the way that he did it was he went to the gym and he set this rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would walk in, do like one exercise, five minutes would be up, and then he'd walk out the door and go home. And he did this for like six weeks. And uh, when you hear it, you think it sounds a little weird. But what you realize is that there are all these little things associated with building a new habit that we don't think about at all. We always think about the outcome, the finish line. We think about, oh, I want to lose 100 pounds or I want to make six figures this year. I want to write a book. But we don't think about like all the little things, that the little logistics associated with a new habit. So, for example, if you're going to go to the gym three or four days a week, well, when are you going to go? Which gym are you going to go to? How are you going to drive there? What route will you take? Will you go with a friend or will you go by yourself? Um, and all of these little details if you just focus on the first two minutes of the behavior, or in his case, just being at the gym for five minutes, then you start to figure all that stuff out. And then you get six weeks in and all that is, is on autopilot now. And now you actually have the chance to improve. Hmm. So the little rule that I like to use is what I call the two minute rule. And so you take any habit that you're trying to build and you scale it down into the first two minutes. So for example, uh, read a book becomes read one page or do 30 minutes of yoga becomes take out your yoga mat. And you just focus on mastering the art of showing up and doing those first two minutes. And once you've done that for a month or two, then you can start to focus on scaling it up. So, so that's the first mistake. Is well, that's really, started. really interesting. I've never yeah, sort of discussed that before, but yeah, really making it small start to get that. that so that, you make it as small as possible. Yeah. Utilize that two minute. And that makes it easier to get started. Hmm. But then once you start um, then the second piece comes in, which is consistency. And the second mistake that I see people make is they adopt this all or nothing mindset. And this is very common with diets. You, someone starts a new diet and they do it for four or five days. And then their friends ask to go to happy hour, or they just feel like ordering a pizza or whatever, and they get off track. And then they feel incredibly guilty because they broke their diet and they feel like, Oh, I, you know, I guess I'm not made for this. I guess I can't stick to this. Uh, I guess it's not meant to be. And so then they just give up, which is um, kind of a crazy way to think about it. Like there's no reason. I think we need to stretch the time scale out here. People judge their – they judge themselves on this like 24-hour basis. And if they haven't been able to be perfect for these last 24 hours, then it must mean that it wasn't worth it at all. Mm. But in fact, if you can stick to the diet, say, two or three days a week, uh, a diet that you weren't doing before – and you do that over the course of the year, well, you know, all of a sudden we got like a hundred plus days that you've eaten in a healthier way than you had previously. Hmm. And 
that doesn't seem impressive uh, when you think about it on a daily basis. But when you look at the impact of would it be better if you ate healthy 100 days out of the year, healthier than you are now? Yeah, that would probably make a meaningful difference. Absolutely. Um, and it's not uh, – it, it, this all-or-nothing mentality breaks that down a little bit. So the, the mantra that I like to provide as an antidote to that is never miss twice. So, uh, of course I'm focused on sticking with the habit consistently and trying to do it, you know, as many days in a row as I can. But if I get off track, then I try to pour all of my energy into making sure I don't miss the next instance of that habit. You know, maybe I'll eat a whole pizza for dinner, but let me make sure that I have a healthy meal for breakfast tomorrow. Or maybe I'll miss my workout on Friday, but let's make sure I'm back in the gym on Monday. And if you never miss twice, if you kind of get that next streak going as quickly as possible, then you really give yourself a a great opportunity to have a lot of habits accumulate over the course of a month or a year or so on. And it helps you kind of get out of this 24 hour cycle, this analysis of your, your behaviors on a small time scale and look at things across the broader span of time. Yeah. It's really important to do that. I like it. And I've certainly found the same thing. It's, it's yeah, one or two days, uh, skipped is okay, but anything longer than that, you start to really change that habit or, or reverse it to into the old habits. Um, the and, phrase I like to use is missing once is a mistake. Missing twice is the start of a new habit. You know, it's like never, it's never really the first mistake that ruins you. It's always the spiral of repeated mistakes that follows. So if you can cut that off as soon as possible, you can avoid a lot of the, the downsides. Yeah. Perfect. And, and habits, you know, piggyback on one another, don't they? Oh, for sure. So you can, this is one of the most effective ways I think to, to build a new habit. Um, is a strategy in the literature, in the research literature, you'll see it referred to as implementation intentions. Uh, B.J. Fogg, a professor at Stanford, sort of adapted this idea specifically for building better habits. And the the way that he phrased it was by you essentially take a habit that you yeah. already are performing now, and then you stack your new habit or your desired habit on top of it. So, for example, you could say something like, say you want to build a meditation habit. After I drink my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. Or um, after I drink my cup of coffee, I will write down my to-do list for the day. And with this this method, which I I refer to as habit stacking, because you're stacking the new behavior on top of an old one, you effectively turn your current habits into a cue or a trigger to remind you to do the next one. And it's also a really nice way to insert uh, new habits into your current routines. So let's say that your your current wake up routine might look something like you wake up, you make the bed, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you get dressed, and you want to start reading more books. So you could say, I wake up, I make the bed, I put a book on my pillow, then I take a shower and brush my teeth and get ready and so on. And then when you go to bed at night, there's a pillow waiting for you there, and then you can use the two-minute rule, which we talked about earlier, and you just read one page, and then you put the back on the book on the nightstand, and then go to sleep, and just kind of repeat this routine each day. And pretty soon, you'll be surprised by how many books you've read. And uh, this idea, this habit stacking idea, gives you just sort of a natural, firm cue to root your new habit in. Yeah, I love it, mate. Lots to it, and um, certainly a great opportunity to mention your book as well. Um, so by the time people are listening to this, it will be. Um, available or, or nearabouts available. So it is titled Atomic Habits, uh, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. So it's released on the, what did you say, the 16th of October? October 16th, that's right. And um, yeah, if you've enjoyed this conversation and want to see more, uh, you can check it out at atomichabits.com. Atomichabits.com. Is there, um, is there anything we've missed, mate, in our discussion? I know we've covered well, a fair bit you know, of the Sure. There's a, we've covered a kind of a high level of things. I mean, for each law of behavior change, there are a variety of exercises and templates we weren't able to cover. Um, but I think there are two areas in particular that, uh, the book gets into in detail that are interesting. One is identity and how our beliefs, uh, impact our behaviors. You know, so often we just talk about the outcomes that we want from a particular habit, but often the beliefs that underlie our habits end up shaping, um, the choices we make in meaningful ways. And the second one is genetics. So uh, late in the book, I, I discuss the influence of genes and personality on habits and choosing the right kind of habit for your personality and uh, and your makeup. You know, there are a lot of habits that 
society kind of leans heavily on us and, and encourages us to do a particular way. And, you know, lifting weights might be a great way to, to look like a bodybuilder. But if you want to ride bikes or go hiking or rock climbing or uh, kayaking, those are all valid ways of building an exercise habit. So you don't have to build the habits that society tells you to build. You can build the ones that are right for you. And mm. uh, I think a lot of that comes down to understanding your own personality and, and uh, genetic makeup a little bit more, which I get into in that chapter and offer some uh, personality tests that people can take and so on. Okay, so with the identity and, and shifting beliefs, I mean, that's that's very much, you know, the, the story we're telling ourselves. Is, is that correct? Or Well, so it's the thing that's interesting about it is it's a two-way street. So uh, once you have adopted an identity, like, you know, I am an American or I am a Democrat or mm. I am a Christian or whatever, once you've adopted a particular story, then you use it as a reason to uh, repeat a particular habit. But the question that I had was, well, how do those stories become ingrained in the first place? And uh, what I realized is that every behavior that you take throughout life is kind of like casting a vote for the type of person that you want to become. And so as the votes accumulate and the evidence builds up, you are more likely to believe a particular thing about yourself. So, for example, if you go to church every Sunday for 20 years, well, then you have a lot of evidence that you're religious and you start to believe that about yourself. If you study biology every Wednesday night for 20 minutes, then you have a lot of evidence that you're studious. And so you start to believe that about yourself. And every behavior, every experience in life adds a little bit to the pile. Mm. But your habits end up forming the bulk of the evidence because they get repeated day after day. And as those votes keep getting cast, uh, eventually the election, so to speak, in this metaphor, uh, is won by the majority of of that evidence. Hmm. And so the real key here is this is true not just for the big categories that I gave earlier, but also for personal beliefs like I'm bad with directions or I'm not good with math or, uh, you know, I and bad at remembering people's names, or I'm a loser, or things like that. And the more that you uh, cast votes for those types of beliefs, the more you start to believe them about yourself. And the question then, once you believe that stuff, you know, it starts to nudge you toward repeating those behaviors. Yeah. The question then becomes, well, how can we change that story? How can we, how can we shift the identity that we have and start to focus on building the identity that we want? For example, I think that it's more effective if you, let's say you want to get in shape. Rather than focusing on uh, how do I lose 40 pounds in the next six months, let's focus on how do I become the type of person who doesn't miss workouts? How do I develop that identity? And once you realize the identity that you want, the, the one that supports the, uh, the lifestyle that you're looking to build, then you just focus on the habits that cast votes for that identity. So doing something like this is where we're, we're kind of tying up everything we just talked about. So going to the gym for just five minutes well, yeah, it's not going to get you the physical result that you're looking for right away, but it is casting a vote for being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And that counts for a lot right. when it happens mm-hmm. on a day where you're busy or when the situations weren't ideal because you start to prove to yourself, this is the type of person I am. And it's really a different conversation to say, I'm the type of person who wants this versus I'm the type of person who is this. And once you a lot of people want things, but once you become that type of person, you're really no longer pursuing behavior change. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person you already believe that you are. And so for that reason, I think it's even uh, more critical to start with small habits, to cast a little vote toward the identity that you're looking to build and eventually become that type of person. And once you're that type of person, then you have all the reason in the world to repeat habits and work on them day in and day out, but also to, uh, to bring it back to the cardinal rule of behavior change that we mentioned earlier, it's immediately rewarding. Um, you know, we talked about one of the challenges of building a good habit is that Hmm. a lot of the rewards are delayed. So, but when I go to the gym, if I believe that I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, I get the immediate benefit of reinforcing that identity of feeling like I'm acting in alignment with my values and principles. And so it both feels good to work out And I also get the long-term result of, yeah, I'm going to be in better shape in three months or whatever. So Mm -hmm. in that way, I think identity plays a central role in what we choose to repeat day in and day out. Because the more that we reaffirm the positive aspects of our identity, the more immediate reward we get from those. And uh, we also just happen to get to enjoy the long-term benefits as well. 
Oh, I love it. That's great. Um, so a lot of lot of more practices and, and templates and guides in the book um, to help people um, through each of these processes. Um, mate, yeah, fantastic. I, I love your work. It, it's an accumulation of how many years of, of um, like research and, and practice in your own art? <laughs> yeah, so I've been writing about it for six years now, uh, and the book in particular was a three-year project. So I'm very... Very excited to get it out and share it with everyone. And uh, I, you know, the book is built to be actionable and a practical guide. So I think that pretty much anyone can find something useful in the pages for uh, for the habits they're working on. Absolutely, mate. I'm enjoying it. I'm about halfway through and, and certainly getting a lot out of it. So, guys, um, I encourage you to pick up a copy. Um, you can go to thehiddenwide.com and check out this episode, episode 670. There'll be a link there. Um, James, they can also go to atomichabits.com and, and get a copy through that link. Yes, that's correct. AtomicHabits.com. And uh, also on that page, you'll find uh, some other templates and resources and stuff to just support the book So, um, and help you get more out of it. So that's definitely the place to go. Fantastic, mate. I've got a few questions that I ask all guests. And the first one that I want to ask you is what routines or rituals do you have that you believe help uh, contribute to your success? Sure. So, I mean, obviously, as uh, as someone who writes about habits, I think a lot about rituals. But I feel like there's Three in particular that really have a big payoff for me. So the first one is uh, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday for the first uh, three years that I have jamesclear.com. And that was sort of the, that writing habit was what put me on the map and kind of got the the business rolling. Um, The second one is working out. So I train in the gym four days a week. And I've said many times before, if I did not lift, I wouldn't have a business because I I don't think I'd be able to handle the psychological roller coaster um, if I didn't have that physical outlet. And then the third one is sleep. So I have kind of this rule for myself, which is I don't cheat myself on sleep. So I usually get eight to nine hours a night, and that's um, that's crucial for me to wake up the next day and feel like I can put my best foot forward. And what does that look like for you as far as bedtime and, and shut off and um, wake up time? And is it is it consistent? Well, so that's the interesting thing. That's been one habit that I've struggled with building, which is uh, not the habit of sleeping enough. I, Like I said, I, I make sure I get eight to nine hours, but the power down ritual is the part that's hard for me. So I'll often be up until about midnight or so, and if I'm up that late, well, that means I'm going to sleep till eight or nine. Um, I prefer to be in bed around 10 and get up around, say, seven, um, but, uh, but that only happens every now and then. It's more likely that I would be up later. Interesting. I find it uh, incredibly difficult to sleep in longer than sort of 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, often I'm up at sort of 4 <laughs> and 4.30 these days, and that's just because I got into that um, early rise. And this wasn't always the case. It's, you know, seven years ago I was getting out of bed at, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock and, and just doing the rush to work sort of routine. Uh, and then I started changing and getting up to exercise and things like that. And now it's 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 almost impossible for me to sleep in past 5. Um mm. So I have to go to bed early, otherwise I don't get those sleep. And it's, it's a real battle yep. that I'm having is to try and get, you know, I'd love eight hours a night, but I'm really getting six to seven most nights because I get to bed at nine or, or 10 and then, you know, you only get that the rest of the hours until you wake up. So it's a challenge. Sure. Um, what What is your definition of success? Well, I don't know about a definition of success, but I do believe that the most valuable commodity is time and that we so often optimize for money instead of time. And I think it should be the other way around. So uh, in one way, I guess I could say my definition of success is free time and the energy and ability to do what you want with it. I like it. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Hmm. Um. I think I feel I don't think that I have that many regrets about what I did uh, or how I, I went about building a business. So I'm not sure that I would change it that much. But I think I probably would tell my 20 year old self to prioritize friends um, and make sure that, uh, especially that close group, you know, you pick the five or 10 people that you're closest with and, um, and make sure that you see them at least once a year and that you talk to them at least once a month. Um, it's really easy, especially as the years click by and, People build families and get jobs and move away to different cities. It's just easy to let time slip by. Mm. And uh, I really feel like that's important to, to make space for that. And I could do a better job of that than I do now. Yeah, I could too. It's um, quite inspiring, actually. Yeah, I like it. What one skill, tool, resource, technique would you uh, recommend for people to 
use to improve their productivity or overall effectiveness? Something that's helped you maybe? Well, I mean, the probably the biggest productivity tip is just to make sure you get eight or nine hours of sleep a night. Mm-hmm. If you, I mean, if you get, uh, if you have the right energy, then instantly your productivity increases. So that's probably the biggest one. Uh, but the second one is certainly reading. Um, you know, reading more exposes you to a ton of ideas. So r- reading is sort of like a meta habit in the sense that it exposes you to, or has the chance to expose you to the habits of thousands of people throughout history. Uh, so if you build a, a reading habit, you can discover the solution to almost any problem you're facing. I like that. That's cool. Uh, I don't have my questions in front of me. The next one I want to mention is what advice would you give someone looking to make some change in their life? Hmm. Um, well, I kind of feel like it's twofold. First of all, everyone is always, life will always have problems. And sometimes the thought that we want to solve something, there's sort of this implicit belief that like there could be a life out there without these problems. And if I could just get to that point, then I would be happy or fulfilled or purposeful or feel successful or whatever. Um, but it's important to almost embrace the fact that life will always have problems and that's fine. Hmm. Um, and if you realize that, then you can start to develop the identity of someone who just is a problem solver and will naturally deal with problems as they arise in your life because they will always be there. And that I feel like is a more empowering place to approach the process of change from than the idea that, oh, if I could just change and get, X amount of dollars or live in this neighborhood or have this job or be in a relationship, then everything would be fine. But, uh, everything will not be fine then. And you'll still need, uh, to have the mental resilience and the ability to deal with whatever challenge you're facing at the time. So I guess it's more about the approach to change than, uh, the actual change individual change itself. Yeah. Cool. What uh, meal would you request if it was your last meal? Oh man, um, I, my answer is probably going to change uh, based on the year or based on when you ask me this. But for right now, I got back from a place called Don Julio in Argentina a couple months ago, and it was insanely good. So I'll take uh, a glass of Malbec and uh, the meal that I had there. Cool. What book would you recommend? Like one book would you recommend to, for everyone to, to read or perhaps you'd pass down to future generations? Hmm. Uh, well, I'll pick two. So the first is Manual for Living by Epictetus. That's probably the book that I've gifted the most. It's, uh, it's in the same vein as a lot of the Stoic books, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and some of these other ones. But in my opinion, Manual for Living is the most readable one and uh, also just you can read the whole thing in an hour and it's incredibly applicable to daily life. And then the the second one would be the lessons of history by Will and Ariel Durant. They were a, uh, a husband wife combo, a pair of historians and they spent like 60 years uh, writing what effectively is a history of the world. And then after they finished this, which is like thousands and thousands of pages of this encyclopedia uh, index of, of history, they summarize the broad trends across history in 100 pages. And that's oh, yeah. the book that's Lessons of History. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to read and just provides a lot of just really interesting trends, ideas, and patterns that you see in human behavior. And uh, there are almost endless ways to apply it to modern life as well. Who is that by? Who are the authors? Will and Ariel Durant uh, is their name. Cool. Guys, I'll stick all those books in the show notes, uh, plus the the new book, Atomic Habits, as well. So um, please jump on there and, and check it out. Uh, what what leisure activities give you the greatest sense of joy? Well, certainly weightlifting uh, yeah. is one of them. There are a lot of days when I will have a bad day mentally or a bad day of work, but at least I get a good workout in, and that feels like it saves it a lot. Um Travel is another one that's really important to me, and as part of that, photography. So I've done travel photography work in over 30 countries now, and for me, photography is a reason to travel. It gives me a reason to, to plan a trip. I have a certain shot that I'm looking to take or a, a certain um, 
story that I'm looking to tell for the place that I go to. And then that gives me a reason to dive into the culture. And then from there, you know, you find out about the food and uh, they're just like these different entry points uh, to culture. And uh, photography is one of those for me. So those are my main two. I like it. Cool, cool. Um, let's just uh, pause for a second and, and talk about your weightlifting schedule. Um, so you said you, you go to the gym four times a week, um, and that's, I assume, for, for weightlifting, yeah? Yes, correct. So usually Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And what does the schedule look like? Is it is it like Mondays, legs, Tuesdays, upper body, and then again on Thursday and Friday? Well, I've done a variety of things over the years, uh, and I've been training for over a decade now. So it's been a, a while and there have been different programs at different times, but currently, uh, I have a powerlifting coach. So, um, most of the lifts that I'm doing are the major big compound power lifts. So squat bench deadlift is kind of the bread and butter of the program. And then there are other accessory exercises built around that. So, uh, military press, for example, or lunges or, um, some ab work, and uh, rows, things like that, okay. uh, or just variants on those uh, the main exercises. So you know, wide grip bench press or trap bar deadlift or things like that. Um, and uh, usually, I am not focused on a particular muscle group like legs or back. Yeah. But uh, there's kind of two big lifts, and then there's one accessory lift each workout. So there's usually three exercises. So like today, for example, it'll be heavy squat, heavy bench, and then some accessory work for shoulder press which is mostly shoulders and traps the three in a in a in a, in a workout session what's what does that go for an hour sort of thing or well it used to be for an hour uh but this particular program that i'm on the coach that i have is fairly intense and so usually i'm in there an hour and a half now okay and so for people looking to to you know maximize the benefits of weightlifting um like myself but slightly amateurish what what advice would you give them as far as you know the 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 best way to maximize your, your workout session? Well, uh, the single biggest thing is don't miss workouts. So, yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds simple, but most of the time, and I, I think the same advice holds true for, uh, for writing and things like that. You know, people want to, they want to be a better writer, have a popular blog. And it's like, well, you know, write an article every week for two years and then get back to me. Um, or, uh, you know, you want to get in shape. It's like, well, don't miss a workout for two years and then see where you're at. Hmm. So, that's a, that's a big part of it. Uh, certainly 90% of it. Um, now after that, what you're choosing to do does matter. And so I would focus on fewer lifts, but on, uh, compound lifts. So squat bench deadlift or big ones, good ones to pick, uh, bent over row or shoulder press, uh, is a good, are good ones. If you have someone to teach them appropriately, clean and jerk and snatch are great. But uh, pull-ups, push-ups, those are really good, too. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of like the 10 or so. Some of the fundamentals, yeah. Sure. And you don't have to do them all. Uh, you can just pick, you know, five or so and break them up over a couple of days and just repeat them. Yeah. Uh, the standard cycle to do or beginner's program is uh, five by five. And there are a bunch of variants of that. So there's the starting strength version, which is five by five for a particular set of lifts. There's the strong lifts version, which is five by five again, for a particular set of lifts. Um, and then there's the actual five by five program. Uh, but any of those are essentially five sets of five reps. And if you just do that, start with a weight that is easy. You should start with a weight that feels too light for each exercise. And then if you don't miss workouts, just increase it a little bit, uh, by five pounds or a couple kilos or whatever, mm. uh, every week, and then do that for six months. And if you don't miss workouts for six months and you do five sets of five and you increase slightly each week after starting at a lightweight, you're going to be at a really good foundational strength level six months out. And uh, the way that, you know, a lot of people, again, it's like everything, people want results right away, but you, six months are going to pass either way. So take your time and do it right. And then six months from now, you're going to be in a much stronger position and you'll actually have the work capacity mm. and the foundational strength to handle a more intense program, uh, or additional volume or whatever. And, uh, that's really what it's about. Like you need to get that foundation built so that you can then handle some of the, the heavier stuff or the more intense stuff. Yeah. Cool. Proud of us. Um, what, what, uh, message or quote would you tweet or text to the world? Uh, if you could, well, 
kind of the mantra that I've been following over the last year or so, and this is one of the core themes of Atomic Habits, is that we do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And I think that that's true on a personal level and on a team level and on a societal level. Uh, we can have all sorts of ambitions and goals that we want to achieve, but it's really the systems and the processes that we've designed that determine whether we make progress on those ambitions or not. And uh, so most of it is about building a better system. And that, I mean, that's one of the key points or pr uh, the primary purpose of Atomic Habits is to give people a framework for building a better system of habits. Uh, but you can you don't just have to apply it to habits. You can apply it to anything. You apply it to designing a democracy, designing a justice system, designing a team and a culture and an organization. Um, really pick whatever you want, but it's all about the system and not about the, the goal. I like it. Do you believe we all have a hidden why or purpose? I don't know. Um, in a lot of ways, our meaning is just what we ascribe to something. So in a sense, nothing matters unless we start to think about it and assign it some type of meaning, some type of purpose, some type of why. And I think really the challenge is to have fewer things be important to you and uh, double down or spend more of your time on the, the one or two or three areas that really matter and stop ascribing meaning and purpose to a thousand different things. Because it's once you start to to treat every interaction and some random little thing somebody said to you at work and something somebody tweeted online and an article that you read once, once you start assigning meaning to all that stuff, you just get distracted and fatigued. You start getting angry about things that don't really matter. Um, and you start generating purpose where it's not useful, but in a few key areas that really yeah. matter to you, well then, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to double down there and, uh, and devote your meaning and purpose and principles and values to those areas. So, uh, whether it's hidden or not, I don't know, but I do think it should be focused. Yeah. I like it. Cool. Cool. Uh, what, what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? I think it means getting to focus on the things that matter. So if we combine those last two questions, uh, the first thing is figure out what matters to you and limit it to a few core things. And then living with passion and purpose means that you get to focus on the things that matter. Cool. And what is, what do you believe is the underlying motivation to everything that you do? <laughs> well, from a biological standpoint, I think the underlying motivation for all of human behavior is uh, to reproduce. And so okay. there's some that is the hidden motive or rationale behind pretty much everything we've invented, including badges and titles, positions, companies, capitalism. Um, it all is about at some point comes back to status and the person with higher status historically speaking, has generally had better access to uh, resources and better options for mates and so on. Um, and in fact, without reproduction, none of us are here. So uh, it has to be at least at the core to some degree, because otherwise we wouldn't even have a population or the ability to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, uh, we don't spend most of our time thinking about that yeah. or um, uh, discussing it, we've kind of invented this like second world, the second layer on top of our, uh, basic survival instincts. And so in that, within that realm, within that layer, uh, the underlying motivation is probably to achieve status is probably to, uh, feel like your work matters. And we often feel like it matters if other people respect it, which is just another way of saying that you have some level of status. Um, so that's a little bit of a uh, um, well answered way to to discuss it, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but yeah, I think that there's so many things. Like I, I just I don't know. I don't think a lot of people realize how much they are seeking that. Um, they think that it's for other reasons, but if there was no level of status associated with what they were doing, they probably would choose a different avenue um, for. Uh, for what they're focusing on. Mm. Matt, I appreciate it. I appreciate, um, yeah, you sharing the, you know, a fair, fair chunk of what your book's all about. Um, certainly want to encourage the guys again to go and get a copy. 
Um, so links will be in the show notes, guys, for this episode 670 with James Clear. James, um, again, how can people best reach you if they want to connect? Sure. So my work's at jamesclear.com. That's yeah. the best place to go if you want to see uh, the other articles that I have, um, browse on various topics I have been organized by category. You can also find social media links there, so for Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and so on. Awesome. And, uh, and Atomic Habits is the best place to check out the, uh, the book. Yeah, cool. Love it, mate. Thanks very much for coming on the show today. Sure, you bet. Thanks so much for having me. Guys, check it all out, thehiddenwide.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon